The reading this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 16 and starting at verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. This is the gospel of Christ. Thank you, Mark. Good morning, everyone. I've never been more ashamed or embarrassed to be an adult at St. Stephen's than I was this morning. We lost to the children. To those of you who came up and grabbed pegs, have a look at yourselves. You didn't just let yourself down, you let all of us down. And I've built up a legacy here at St. Stephen's over many years that we've never lost to the children. You guys just threw it all away. And Kennedy, I heard you looking for a way out for the children. I could hear it over there, trying to find a way. Mal had made a mistake. The adults were well on their way of winning. I stand here ashamed. Well, let's pray before we think on this passage. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, on a fairly miserable morning outside, we can gather in the, um, the comfort, the dryness, the warmth of this place. We can hear your word. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who came to earth those many years ago and taught wonderful things about you, did incredible things. We pray that now as we spend some time thinking on these particular words of Jesus and what it means about who he is and what you are at work doing in the world even to this day, we pray that we might be strengthened, encouraged, challenged, that we might be made more and more into the likeness of your Son. And we pray these things in his precious name. Amen. Uh, next week is Vestry. Vestry is the, uh, the governing body of uh, St. Stephen's. And next week, the Vestry is going to have a special Vestry Day on Saturday. This might be the part of the service you go, well, I'm glad I'm not on Vestry, because they're going to be spending all of Saturday together. We're setting aside a special day to, um, on Saturday to pray, to think, to discuss and decide on some of the issues that are facing St. Stephen's as a church. It's a very good thing to do. At our regular meetings, the the once a month on a Monday evening, all we really get a chance to do is to do the business of the church. We keep the wheels moving, but we don't get the chance to do much blue sky planning or thinking. So Saturday, hopefully, we will be doing some of that. We've probably got four things on the agenda, and two of them are about buildings. One is we're going to be thinking about Quinn's Road, the chapel that we bought last year and that the officers are in, and we're going to be thinking about what we need to do with that building and um, seeing how it's been suited to our purposes. 
But then secondly, we're also going to be thinking about the possibility of future buildings. Ever since we lost our buildings in the earthquakes 10 years ago, we haven't had a building where we could all meet on a Sunday. So we'll do some thinking and some praying uh, about that there. In other words, right now at the moment, we at St Stephen's are in the middle of a building project. And uh, on Saturday, I would imagine that we'll spend a fair bit of time thinking, praying, discussing about buildings. Well, today, we're back in Matthew's Gospel. We've had a couple of weeks off. If you're not a regular at St. Stephen's, we had Pentecost, and then last week, Joel uh, looked at one of the Psalms. But today, we're back in Matthew's Gospel. We're back in this uh, in chapter 16, the verses that Mark just read, and we see that we're not the only ones involved in a building project. Jesus says that he is involved in a building project. And these are very important words that Jesus says in this section. There's not many words in the actual passage, but the truths that he says here are very significant. We're going to see Jesus ask a crucial question. We're going to see Jesus make a crucial statement. And we're going to see some verses which are amongst the most controversial in the New Testament. But in particular, what I want us to focus on is the crucial question that Jesus asks and the crucial statement that he makes. They are very important for us to consider, to ponder on. They're very relevant. Uh, Both of them, I think, should profoundly influence the way we see our building project as we think about it in the light of his. So let me set the scene for what's happening as these uh, verses take place. Then we'll look at the question that Jesus asks and the statement that he makes. Uh, Let me set the scene. In the first 15 chapters of Matthew, what we've seen is Jesus make a huge splash. As soon as he came onto the scene, he makes this huge splash in Israel. This guy said things which blew people's minds away. People had never heard wisdom like his on the lips of a human being before. People had never encountered insight like his. And so we find all the people gathering wherever he went so that they could hear the things that he taught. But he didn't just speak wonderful things, he did incredible things. We see and have seen him through these first 15 chapters in Matthew uh, do wonderful miracles. Miracles with nature, miracles with food, miracles with healing. People saw and witnessed Jesus do these things. Even the enemies of Jesus couldn't deny that he'd done them. And so Jesus has become a huge deal. Wherever he goes, people flock to him to hear the wisdom that he's got and to see the incredible things that he did. But another thing has also been clear in Matthew's Gospel as we've been going through. People weren't sure who he was. They knew he was great, but they didn't exactly know his identity. We've seen a few times through these early chapters in Matthew's Gospel that even the disciples, those 12 who spent the most time with Jesus, who listened to him the most and saw him the most, even they weren't entirely sure exactly who they were with. There were different times when Jesus would do something incredible and they would literally say, who is this? So our verses today are a watershed moment in the Gospel of Matthew. Because up until now, if if we've been reading through Matthew's Gospel as we have been on these these, uh, different Sundays, no one had correctly identified who Jesus was until this point. No one except the demons. Funnily enough, the demons, every time they encountered Jesus, they knew exactly who he was. But here for the first time, someone, and it's going to be Peter, spoiler alert, it's going to be Peter, Peter will for the first time confess exactly who Jesus is. So with that kind of setting the scene, have a look at verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, 
Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now remember, the Son of Man is a title that Jesus used about himself. So he's saying, who do the people say that I am? And the disciples collectively give some options. They replied, some say John the Baptist. We know because earlier on in Matthew's Gospel, King Herod had thought Jesus, uh, Jesus was John the Baptist coming back from the dead. Uh, others thought he might be Elijah. Some thought he might be Jeremiah. Others, another prophet. Now that's the link there between all the different candidates that people are suggesting. They were all prophets. And we don't tend to think of prophets as that big a deal today, but um, this was massive in the life of Israel. This should tell us the, the kind of esteem that Jesus was being held in. These names and the office of prophet were some of the most important people in Israel's history. Even John the Baptist, who I think sometimes today we underestimate because uh, he only, he only, he's only there for a few verses in the early chapters of the Gospels, but he was the first recognized prophet and probably most important and influential person in the last 400 years of history of Israel. So when Jesus is being spoken of in the category of a John the Baptist or an Elijah uh, or a Jeremiah, he, he's, that's huge. That's like today. We, we have lots of conversations today of people who's in the goat category of certain areas of life. Goat meaning greatest of all time. Who's the, who's the goat all black? Michael Jones, we all know that. Who's the goat when it comes to other areas of life? And people will have specific names that they bring up. Well, it's clear from this conversation, Jesus is in the conversation of the greatest of all time in Israel. People were hugely impressed by who Jesus was. So when Jesus says, who do people say I am? He's obviously top shelf, but that's not enough for Jesus. He pushes further. And this is our first point today. Jesus then asks a crucial question. And I want you to think about it for yourself. Verse 15. Okay, it's as if he says, forget what everyone else says about me for a moment. What about you? Who do you say that I am? Here's the most important question in the history of the world. Here's the most important question that any of us as an individual will ever face. And the truth is, all of us will be asked it individually at some stage. Jay, who do you say I am? George, who do you say I am? Mary, who do you say I am? How will you answer? And it's not, who does your family say that I am? It's not, who do your parents think I am? It's not, who, do you, who does your church think I am? Who do you say I am? I would contend that the question the world asks today, certainly in the West, is, who am I? And we, we tend to think this is the most important question in the world. It's really not. It's really not. No one will remember JB in, in uh, 40 years' time. The most important question in the world is, who do you say Jesus is? It was the most important question 2,000 years ago. It continues to be. Who do you say I am? That's the question more than any other that deserves your focus, your attention, your concentration. You may be sitting there this morning with a million questions in your mind about what you're going to do later today or what your life is going to look like in two years' time, but this is still the most important question. There is loads of questions in life that we don't really think about when they're asked. The implications, the consequences that come from them are not really that important. I'm sure I'll be asked today by many people, how, how are you doing? And I'll probably go, fine. 
and I won't even think about it, and it won't matter that I haven't thought about it. But every now and then, there are important questions. And the consequences of those questions and the answers given are vital. A certain uh, exam question, and you've got to answer it because you need to pass that exam. A question asked by a judge in a court of law, and you need to tell the truth or else you're going to be in trouble. This is the most important question you will ever be asked. Who do you say I am? You must think about it. You must research it if you're not sure. You must reflect on it. And of course, in the end, you must answer it. Who do you say you? Who do you say Jesus is? Don't leave here this morning without answering that question. It's too important. And if your answer is, well, I don't know yet, it's too important to leave here today without thinking about what you're going to do if you need to know more. Come and grab Joel or I after the service and we'll, we'll sit down somewhere and chat with you about it. But don't leave, it's too important. Too important to muck around with or deflect or, or to postpone or put off. Well, that's the question that Jesus answered, asked, the crucial question. And Peter and this doesn't surprise us, does it? Because Peter it seems to be the one who will always have a crack at answering anything. Peter bravely answers it. And the wonderful news is here, Peter gets it right. Peter doesn't always get it right, but he does here. He says these great words, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is one of those answers, uh, the questions where um, you can get it right if you want to. <laughs> the answer's right here. I've just been asking you, how would you answer it? Answer it with that. This is the right answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Christ, you'll remember, wasn't Jesus' surname. It was a title. And Christ is the same word as the word Messiah. Greek is the, the Greek version. Uh, he, Messiah is the Hebrew version. It means literally anointed one, but it's talking about a special king. And here it's being used of the one who'd been promised and prophesied in the Old Testament who would come and rescue God's people and rule them forever. God had promised David, the great king of the Old Testament times, that one day another king from David's line would come and that king would save God's people and rule them forever. That was the Christ. That was the Messiah. That was who the Jews were always looking forward to. And so Peter says, on this occasion, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're that guy. You're the Christ that everything's been waiting for, the great promise that we've all been hoping for and expecting. You're not just a prophet, as wonderful as a prophet is. You're actually the son of the living God. You are the Christ. It's a great moment in Matthew, this, because finally someone gets it right. Finally one of the disciples gets it right. They work out what we as the reader of Matthew's gospel have known since verse one, chapter 1, verse 1, when Matthew actually told us this is about Jesus, who's the Christ. Finally someone gets it 16 and a half chapters later. Well, Jesus then responds to Peter, telling Peter, Peter, you only know this, not because it's been revealed to you by any human being, but by my Father, as all good things are. And then Jesus says some more stuff. And it's here we move from the crucial question that Jesus asks to the crucial statement that, that, that Jesus makes. And although the statement's clear, some of the rest of the stuff around it is not so clear. So let me, let's start first with um, the clear stuff, which is the crucial statement. Jesus makes a crucial statement. Have a read, verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. 
Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, did you see the statement, the crucial statement that Jesus makes? I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. That right there is a wonderful truth statement that Jesus makes that is incredibly important for you and I and Christians individually and churches collectively to know and to trust and to hold on to. Because at different times we doubt it. Every year or so there's a a newspaper article or another TV documentary boldly claiming that the time of the church is dead, it's over. Churches are declining and they'll come to an end fairly soon. And sometimes our experience backs up what we hear with our ears or see with our eyes. Sometimes we experience church as quite weak or vulnerable. We've experienced in the last few years a church split that could give you a lot of a lack of confidence in the strength of the church and its ability to carry on. We can look around us and see examples of Christian leaders who've fallen and failed and think, well, if that's going to carry on, well, so the church is going to die. Some of us uh, belong to churches or, or experience churches where there's not a, a single person under 25 and we think, well, is the, is the next generation ever going to catch the gospel? Is the church going to continue? Uh, we hear some of the, the statements made uh, on behalf of churches and we think, well, it's got so wishy-washy. Is it going to stand for anything or is it just going to fold, fold over? And we can have very little confidence that the church will be continuing. Will it stand? Will it survive? Would you see the great news here from this passage in the words of Jesus Christ? I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. That's the promise that Jesus makes. It's not just you and I and St. Stephen's involved in a building project. Jesus himself is. God is. And he's the one that does it. Gates, of course, back then were the, the, the signs of power and stability and security. So not even the power of Hades will overcome it. The church will survive human failures. It will survive having what the world thinks is unpopular beliefs. It will survive persecution. It will survive Satan. It will survive more than that. And it won't just survive, it will thrive because Jesus himself is building it. It's a crucial statement that Jesus makes. Very important question that he asks. And then he follows it up with a very important statement. It should give us massive encouragement as Christians. It's not up to you and I. Isn't that a blessed relief? Because we'd muck it up properly. Jesus won't. He will build his church. But it's the words around this crucial statement that has caused some of the questions and the controversy. Verse 18, the full statement is, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So lots of people have wrestled with, well, what's the rock there upon which Jesus will build his church? Is it Peter? Could be Peter. Is Peter the rock upon which Jesus builds his church? That's probably the most obvious kind of answer, and yet also the one that you kind of go, well, is the church built on Peter? Uh, Is it all the apostles, of which Peter is the example, and Jesus is using him as the, the example, excuse my <laughs> speech, uh, because he's the one he's actually talking to at the moment. Or is it the confession that Peter's just made? You are the Christ, and that's the rock that the church is going to be built on. There's lots of different options. Uh, the most obvious, I think, is that he's referring to Peter. Peter seems to be the subject of the sentence, and there's a play on words going on that we can miss in the English translation. 
Because in, in, the, in the Greek language, the word Peter is Petros, and it means little stone. And the word for rock, big rock, is Petra. So can you see the word play that's going on there? Jesus is saying that um, uh, you are Petros, and upon, my, and upon Petra I will build my church. So again, that makes it seem like it's Peter. Also, Jesus goes on to talk about holding keys and binding and loosing, which makes it seem like it's not just the confession. You are the Christ that's the rock. makes it seem like it's a person who's going to be built upon. And this is the passage where two famous things come from. Firstly, all the jokes about Peter standing at the pearly gates letting people in, they come from these verses. Secondly, not as funny, all the Roman Catholic doctrine of Peter being the first infallible, that means not being able to make a mistake, infallible leader of the church, and all the popes coming after Peter being the Peter of that generation, i.e. also infallible and doing the loosing and the binding. Now, I don't buy into the Roman Catholic theology about Peter as the first infallible pope from these um, uh, verses or the succession that came from it. The reason why is pretty simple. In the, in the very next verses that we're going to look at next week, Peter will say something that is so wrong. Jesus will say to him, get behind me, Satan. I don't know how you can get that Peter's infallible from here. He's about to make one of the worst mistakes of all time. So it's clearly not saying he's infallible. These verses don't say anything about succession either. I don't know where we get the idea that there's going to be one Peter in every generation. So I don't think it's that. But you can see why people go, but is it Peter? Because it's odd to think that Peter would be described in the way that um, uh, he's the rock on which the church is built and has the keys of heaven and the power of loosing and building. Wouldn't we think only Jesus has that kind of authority? And But I do think it's Peter. I think Peter's being spoken of here. I think it's more than Peter. I think he's speaking about all the apostles and I think he's speaking about the confession. Uh, you are the Christ. I think it's all, but Peter's got a certain role to play that no one else will. You can see that in the book of Acts. The book of Acts shows the building of the church. It shows the gospel message of Jesus going out and people becoming converted all around the world. And the key verse in the book of Acts is chapter 1, verse 8, where it says what's going to happen in the rest of the book. Jesus says his disciples are going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Ends of the earth there, meaning Gentiles. And the book shows the gospel progress go out in that way. It successfully starts in Jerusalem, then it moves to Judea, Samaria. The, the significance of Judea, Samaria is the, the Samaritans were half Jewish. So it's going to Jews in Jerusalem, then to those who are not quite Jews in Judea, Samaria, then to the ends of the earth, to Gentiles. And when you read through the book of Acts, the gospel spreads in that way. But the key player, every time the gospel goes to the next stage, is who? Peter. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came to Jerusalem, who was it who was preaching and witnessing? It was Peter. In chapter 8, we then see the gospel go to Judea, Samaria. And Peter's not there. Philip and some others take the gospel there, but something very odd happens. The Holy Spirit doesn't come upon the people at Judea, Samaria when they believe. When does the Holy Spirit come? When Peter and John get there to witness it. 
So the Holy Spirit doesn't come until Peter's there involved. So the gospel's gone from Jerusalem, and Peter's the one that witnesses it. It then goes to Judea, Samaria. He's the one that witnesses. And then in chapter 10, it goes to the ends of the earth with Cornelius. And again, it's Peter who's involved. So Peter is the key man involved in the building of the church as it goes on in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit comes to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth through Peter's ministry. So my theory, for what it's worth, but it's a good one, is Peter is the rock that's being spoken of here. But it also includes, Peter's the example of what all the apostles will be doing. And how will they be doing it? By preaching the confession, you are the Christ. That's what's going on here. The keys to heaven are when people hear, and the loosing and the binding, that's when people hear that Jesus is the Christ, and if they believe it, they are loosed. Their souls, their hearts, their lives are free in Christ. If they reject it, they are bound because they haven't trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only way of freedom. Jesus will actually use the language of loosing and binding again in two chapters' time, and it's clearly about forgiveness. Sometimes we see that and we think, oh, it's spiritual warfare that's going on. It is, but around forgiveness. It's clear from chapter 18. It's the same language in John chapter 20. So let's put it all together as we finish. Jesus has made a crucial, asked a crucial question and made a crucial statement. And we should bear both these things in mind as we, inde- as we take part in our own building project. Building projects were big in the scriptures. It doesn't start off with a building project because there's no temple or tabernacle or anything like that in the garden because God's presence is, is with the people. But as soon as the fall happens... Building projects by God are huge in the Old Testament. If you don't believe me, read the second half of the book of Exodus and see how many chapters are spent on the details of the building of the tabernacle. And then as you keep reading, uh, because it's very important that the people of God have a place to worship God and it will be the tabernacle. Then as you keep reading in the Old Testament, it changes to the temple. And there's instruction after instruction after instruction on how to build the temple. But then when you get to the New Testament, there's not a lot about buildings. Why? Well, Jesus himself, when he speaks to the Samaritan woman, will say... Uh, you, you think it's all about the place at Gerizim. Jews think it's all about the place at Jerusalem. But I tell you, there's now a time where people, spirit not, people worship not in a place, but in spirit and truth. And Jesus talks about himself as the temple. Destroy this temple and I'll build it up and re- rebuild it in three days. And he's talking about himself. And then the Holy Spirit comes down. And it's not about tabernacles and temples anymore. The Holy Spirit dwells in each of us. We're the temple. It's an incredible kind of truth. And there's no temple in the new creation at the end of Revelation because God is with us and inside us. There's no holy places anymore. There's holy people. Jesus says here, he's the one building this. He's the one building you and I, strengthening us. The church will not die because he's the one building it. So friends, as we continue to go through our own building project here at St. Stephen's, Let's make sure that we have asked the question, who do you say that I am? Because that's the way that Jesus builds his church. And then let's have confidence that Jesus is building us. Whether we get the right building at the time we wish for, or all those other details, that's not the key thing. Jesus is building his church, and not even the gates of Hades will be able to overcome it. There's some great truths here that Jesus says. A crucial question, a crucial statement, and I pray that we'll keep them in mind. Let me pray.
Father, I pray that every single one of us sitting here this morning may know exactly who the Lord Jesus is, that he is the Christ. He's the one who's made us your children. And we thank you for the wonderful encouragement that it's you who's building your church. I pray that that might encourage us when things are, uh, we're finding things hard and we're making slow progress. And I pray that it might spur us on if we've just tended to drift and um, glide. Father, we thank you for these truths and we pray that they might make a difference in our lives. For we ask them in Jesus' name. Amen.